0: While you're turning to John 17, let me mention that the church now has a contract on the four lots that we split off at the equestrian property, so pray that those will go through escrow uh, without a glitch and then continue to pray for a buyer for the ten acres that we've yet to um, yet to sell and uh, appreciate all that everyone is doing on those things and just one other item for prayer. <laughs> before when we had all 14 acres i think the city tax assessor assessed it at something like 800,000 and then we divided it and now he's assessing the 10 acres at 1.8 million go figure so we're trying to get that adjusted and say come on you know the property didn't more than double in value when we cut off 4 acres and made it smaller Uh, So, anyway, just keep that in prayer, and uh, we have some people working on that situation, but sometimes you scratch your head at the logic. Anyway, we come to John 17, and you'll find an outline in your bulletin. You'll find printed messages at both exits. Feel free to get up and grab one now or get one later if you'd like, and um, those are all on the church website, and... You can go back 23 years, and they're all on the church website if you want to check any of those out, both printed and audio messages there. Jesus has just finished his discourse to the 11 disciples, um, what is called the Upper Room Discourse. We're not sure if he left the Upper Room at the end of John 14, And the rest of it was delivered as they made their way to the Mount of Olives. But uh, now we come to Jesus' prayer that we are privileged to listen to. Jesus spoke these things. And lifting his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you Even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father... Glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. I hope that you left your shoes at the door when you walked in this morning, figuratively speaking anyway, because we step onto holy ground here in coming to this prayer of our Lord in John 17 There isn't a Sunday that goes by that I don't feel overwhelmed with inadequacy when I get up to teach God's Word, but when you come to a passage like John 17, I'll be honest, I almost just feel paralyzed, like, help. (laughs) What do I say? How do I deal with this? We're really entering into the Holy of Holies here. And so we need to tremble at God's word, and as the Apostle Paul himself exclaimed, who is adequate for these things? Scottish minister uh, John Brown wrote this, The 17th chapter of the Gospel of John is without doubt the most remarkable portion of the most remarkable book in the world. You know, we often read in the Gospels that Jesus prayed. Sometimes the Gospels give us little snippets of what he prayed, you know, a short condensed version of it. But this chapter is absolutely unique in that here, just hours before Jesus is arrested, we get to eavesdrop on what is the longest recorded prayer ...in the New Testament as Jesus here prays. The chapter falls into three sections. In the first five verses, Jesus prays for himself that he would be glorified. In verses 6 through 19, he prays for the disciples that they would be sanctified. And then in the final verses, 20 to 26, he prays for the church that will come to be through their witness that we would be unified. We learn here about prayer, of course. We learn about God's sovereign purpose and our place in it. We learn here some profound things about the relationship between the Father and the Son in the Holy Trinity. Uh, Jesus obviously views himself equal to the Father in terms of glory, as we see in verse 5. And yet, at the same time, he is distinct from the Father. Uh, The Father and the Son are one, and yet they are distinct persons. And he is clearly subject to the Father and their relationship as he here submits to the Father's uh, sovereign will, the cross. John G. Mitchell wrote, If there is any chapter in the Bible that would reveal the deity of the Son of God and his equality with the Father... It would be this chapter. And I believe that this prayer, along with the one of which we only have a snippet, where he prayed, Father, if it be your will, remove this cup from me, the prayer he will pray momentarily in the garden. But those two prayers are what steeled Christ to face the agony of the cross. And so in applying it to us, we certainly don't have to face and do what he did in dying on the cross, being made sin for us, as 2 Corinthians 5.21 says. But we do have to be faithful witnesses in a world that is often hostile to the gospel. And so in applying this, I believe we can learn from the Lord that to do God's will in this hostile world, as Jesus did going to the cross, as we will have to do if we're faithful in a lesser way, to do God's will in this hostile world, we need to understand and submit in prayer to God's sovereign plan to glorify himself through the cross. As you think of this prayer, it reveals Christ's raw courage in going to the cross. He was resolute, knowing what was ahead, Sometimes it's a blessing, isn't it, that trials kind of hit you blindside? Because if you knew it was coming, you know, you would be a wreck before it hit. But God is gracious to us. But Jesus knew in advance what he was going to face, the awful horror of just the physical agony of scourging and the cross, but even more, that horror of being made sin for us. And yet he was resolute because he knew it was God's sovereign plan And he submitted in prayer to that plan. And so the lesson again for us is when we face a hostile world, how can we do God's will? How can we be faithful in what God has given us to do? I'm going to approach it from the standpoint of our Lord. And first note that Jesus recognized and submitted to God's sovereign plan here to glorify himself through the cross. Now, when I talk about God's sovereignty, sometimes that subject gets blown off like, oh, that's just a theological debate. It doesn't have any practical application. In fact, a, a pastor here in town told me that once. He said, oh, that, that's just something we talked about in seminary, isn't it? And I went, huh? I said, no, that's the most practical doctrine that we can get a handle on because it shows us uh, how to face major trials in our lives as Jesus. Is going to do here. He's facing the cross and his focus is on God's sovereign plan to glorify himself through the cross. And I want to break that down into four aspects of that truth. First of all, note that God's sovereign plan here involved the hour, uh, the hour when the Son of God would offer himself on the cross. Verse 1, Jesus spoke these things and lifting his eyes to heaven, which was a common posture and prayer for the Jewish people, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. These things, of course, refers to the entire upper room discourse. Uh, and thankfully, Jesus spoke this prayer out loud so that the disciples could hear hear it and be instructed, and then John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, could record it so that now uh, all of these years of church history, the saints can read and meditate on this prayer. Father shows the close relationship that Jesus had with the Father. In fact, he uses that address in prayer uh, six times here. It's here in verse 1. It's down in verse 5. In verse 11, he addresses the Father as Holy Father. And uh, just as an aside, there are no other Holy Fathers. The Pope is not Holy Father. That is blasphemous. Only God the Father is Holy Father. Okay? Down in verse 21, he is Father. Verse 24, he's Father. And then in verse 25, he is righteous father. There is an eternal relationship between God the Father and God the Son that Jesus refers to in verse 5, the glory that he had with the Father before the world even existed. And yet, in another sense, God is the Father of Jesus Christ in his incarnation as well, um, And, as you know, in the Lord's Prayer, so-called, it's really the disciples' prayer. This is the Lord's Prayer here. Uh, But when Jesus instructed the disciples how to pray, he said, pray in this manner, our Father who is in heaven. And so, we are privileged, and this ought to just cause you to stop in wonder and adoration. We are privileged, sinners though we are, to come into the presence of the holy God who spoke the universe into existence and address him as Father. And know that he will welcome us into his presence as his beloved children. And so, we have to be in submission to him, of course. He is God, and we're not God. But um, we can come and say, Father, and know that we'll be received because of Jesus and what he did. The hour has come, Jesus said. And if you've been tracking with us in our studies on John, that is not an unfamiliar term. Um, It it refers to the God-ordained hour of the cross. And five times in John, we read that either the hour or the time has not yet come. And then, right as the cross looms on the horizon, there is a shift in John chapter 12, verse 23, verse 27, John 13, 1, John sixteen thirty-two, and then here, uh, Jesus mentions the hour has come. And it's the hour that had been determined before the foundation of the world, between the Father and the Son, when Jesus, the Son of God, would come to this earth, take on human flesh, and die on the cross as a substitute for sinners. The Apostle Peter referred to God's sovereignty in the cross in his sermon on in Acts 2.23 when he said, This man, referring to Jesus, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, and God's foreknowledge doesn't just mean he knew in advance, it means he ordained it in advance. That's He doesn't just... Uh, know what's going to happen, happenstance, he determines it. Peter says, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. And so God sovereignly determined the plan for our salvation, which involved the crucifixion of his son. And yet, and here is the mystery, he holds responsible all of the sinners who killed Jesus for their unbelief and their Rebellion against God. God's sovereign plan is also seen in verse 3, where Jesus mentions again that he has been sent to this earth by the Father. Forty-one times in John we read that Jesus was sent. It, as Leon Morris says, it shows that the thought of mission is important to John. John. Jesus lived with that sense that he came to earth for a purpose. He came, as we see in verse 4, to accomplish the work that the Father had given him to do, and that work especially points to the cross. Now, applying that to us, none of us know God's sovereign plan in advance as Jesus did. Jesus knew the predetermined hour had come, That hour involved the cross, and so he walked with his eyes open right into it. But still, it is a great comfort to know that in whatever trials we get in, as we follow the Lord and seek to to do his will, those trials have been ordained by God. God is sovereign in all things, and nothing can happen outside of his sovereign control. And Jesus endured the cross knowing that this was God's predetermined, plan. God had appointed the hour. And my point is, if you know that God is in control of history, and God is in control of your history, then you can face those trials trusting in him. And I know it's easy to say that right here, and I am not being glib, but our brothers and sisters in Syria and Iraq, that's very practical truth for them, isn't it? To know God, you're still in charge, even in these horrific events that are happening uh, to our brothers and sisters over there. A second thing to note here about God's sovereign plan is that it involves glorifying himself and his Son through the cross. Now, verse 1, Jesus refers to that. Glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you. And then in verse 4, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do, and that work especially is the cross. And Jesus is speaking, even though the cross still is in the next day after he's praying, he's speaking of it as a done deal. Um, He knew he was going to the cross. The work would be accomplished, as John records Jesus saying from the cross, it's finished, it's finished is as we think about it maybe it's not as strange to us but in the first century the cross was a very strange place to look for glory the cross in our day is a artistic little thing you put it around your neck maybe or beautiful cross like that we put up and it's it's not gruesome and gory and horrific with all kinds of terrible memories of seeing people writhing in agony. In that day, the cross, if you wore one around your neck, it'd be like wearing a hangman's noose around your neck now. People would look at you and go, what is with this person? Wearing a, an instrument of execution? And, of course, crucifixion was far more horrific than hanging. It was the most gruesome Horrible, tortuous, slow death. Shameful. They stripped them naked and hung them in public. They taunted them as they did with Jesus. But God's glory is supremely displayed at the cross. Now to glorify God means to display his perfect attributes so that others will marvel at who he is and at what he has done. It means in street talk, when you glorify God, you make him look good, as he truly is. And there is nothing that glorifies God like the cross. In the first place, the cross displays God's power and his wisdom. The Apostle Paul refers to that in 1 Corinthians 1, 23 and 24. He says, we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block And to the Gentiles, foolishness. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, notice, Christ the power of God and Christ the wisdom of God. The cross is God's power because, as Paul says in Romans 1.16, the message of the cross is uh, it is the power of God to salvation to all who believe. And it's the wisdom of God, as Paul displays there in 1 Corinthians 1, Because it strips the wise of their wisdom. It strips the good of their good works. It humbles everyone as a sinner on level ground before the cross. And then God is pleased to save the weak and the sinful and those who are not wise. And Paul says, that way, the only boast goes to God. He gets all the glory. You know, every religion except biblical Christianity... Salvation is based, at least in part, in adding up your good works until finally you tip the scale and you got enough to get into heaven. And that's true even, I might add, in some branches that are called Christian, where you have to add up works of merit and the prayers of others. And finally, finally, hopefully, combined with what Jesus did, you got enough to get yourself in. Biblical Christianity yanks the rug out from under that and says, no, we all come as sinners. We all come as sinners. And so when God saves us, it's all of God, and he gets all of the glory. And so Satan is relentless in in opposing the message of the cross. Always, always, always he has opposed the cross, because he's opposed to God and his glory. And so anytime you see a blending of human works added in as the basis for salvation, let your radar go off to say, wait a minute, wait a minute. That is not the message of the cross. The cross also, besides God's power and glory, displays his supreme sovereignty in that God used the choices of sinners to fulfill specific Old Testament prophecies about Jesus. And here's the mystery of the sovereignty of God and the so-called freedom or free will of man. I don't believe in free will. It's a bad term. Nobody has free will when you're fast bound in sin. But people do make choices. And the mystery of this is God used his sovereignty and people's choices to fulfill prophecy. Uh, For example, Jesus was God's Passover lamb. He was the fulfillment of what the Passover pictured when they took the blood, put it on the doorpost, and the angel of death passed over the Jews. But the Jewish leaders didn't want to kill Jesus during the Passover because they feared a riot. God overruled them. And Jesus was killed during the Passover as the Passover lamb. Another example, the pagan soldiers, these are just a bunch of raw pagans, saw Jesus' garments and said, hey, yeah, you want to gamble for him? Sure. And they cast lots and they divided up some of his garments and then his tunic was woven without any seam. And so they said, eh, let's not ruin it. Let's just cast lots for it. And in doing so, they specifically fulfilled Psalm 22, 18. Another example. The soldiers came along said, Hey, it's getting toward night. Let's break these guys' legs and get it over with because you had to have the power of your legs to push up on the cross to get a breath. And if you couldn't push up, you, you would suffocate instantly. So they came along and put two of the guys out of their misery Came to Jesus, He was already dead, and they didn't break His legs. And John nineteen thirty six will explain that was to fulfill Scripture. Not a bone of His body would be broken. As you know, Jesus was crucified between two common criminals, and yet when He was taken down from the cross, He was laid in the tomb of a rich man, and that specifically fulfilled Isaiah fifty three nine. I could go on and on, but the point is the cross shows that God is sovereign over all things, including the so-called free will of man. God uses even the sinful deeds of people to accomplish his holy and pure and sovereign purpose. Another way the cross displays uh, God's glory is it displays his holiness and his justice. Sometimes you'll have unbelievers ask you, well, Why can't God just forgive people? You know, if somebody wrongs me, I forgive them. Why can't God forgive apart... What's all this about Jesus has to die for God to forgive people? Why can't he just forgive them apart from Jesus' death? And the answer, of course, is because you're not holy and God is holy. You're not righteous and God is righteous. And if God, the righteous judge of the universe, just blew off sin he would be like an unjust human judge. In other words, he would not be God at all. You know, if somebody goes to a judge and he says, yeah, you murdered somebody, try not to do it next time, you'd say, that guy is an unjust, unrighteous judge. And God, the sovereign of the universe, has determined that the wages of sin is death, eternal separation from him in hell. And on the cross, Jesus, as the unique God-man, he had to be God for his death to have uh, value beyond himself, but he had to be man to identify with our sin. he bore the penalty that God had decreed for every sinner who trusts in him. And so Paul says in Romans 3.26 that that way God can be both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And then also, of course, and this is what we mainly think of when we think of the cross, it demonstrates God's gra- his love, his mercy, and his grace. And the fact is, God doesn't just show love to people who are pretty good people who deserve it. But the amazing thing is that God justifies the ungodly, as Romans 4-5 says, or as Paul says in Romans 5-8, God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Now, Christ's aim in his earthly ministry, as is clear here, was to glorify the Father by accomplishing the work which the Father gave him to do. And now he prays that the Father would glorify him with the glory that he had even before the world was, so that he, in turn, would glorify the Father. That prayer, by the way, assumes Jesus' deity. Can you imagine any mere creature praying, you know, glorify me with the glory I had with you before the world was, we'd go, huh? Hello? Come on. Jesus could pray that. The Father does not share His glory with any creature. He stands alone in His infinite glory. And Jesus, back in John 5.23, boldly made this claim, All will honor the Son even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him there's that concept again of being sent now none of us of course can do what jesus did and when he offered himself on the cross as a substitute for our sins but we can certainly learn from his example the goal of glorifying god the apostle paul said his aim was that whether in life or in death god would be exalted in his body that god would be exalted and He told us that whatever you do, eat, drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And to make God's glory our aim means we've got to dethrone self and we have to enthrone Christ as Lord of our lives. It means we have to submit to God's mighty hand in all things, especially in trials and persecutions, as 1 Peter 5 says. And what I'm saying is this all runs contrary to to much popular Christianity today. There's this false teaching called the prosperity gospel and the idea that God is out there to make you happy and prosperous and rich and healthy. And that is totally contrary to Scripture. God is there to glorify himself through you. And he may do that through death or through life through sickness, through health, through poverty, through riches. Whatever it is, the aim is not me, it's him. It's he. Glorify him. And adopting that mindset is going to strengthen you to do his will when you face hostility. So first of all is the hour that shows God's sovereignty. Then there is the glory. Now, thirdly, God's sovereign plan involves Jesus' Giving eternal life to all whom the Father had given him. He prays in verse 1 that he would glorify, the Father would glorify the Son so that the Son might glorify the Father. And then in verse 2, he's explaining how that glory will be worked out. Verse 2 Even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. Jesus is saying there that he has authority over all people. And as a result of that authority, he is going to give eternal life to some people. And again, that is a claim of deity. No man could say that. You know, I have authority over all people. You'd say, the guy's nuts. And I can give eternal life to, to some people. Again, what? Hello. Jesus could make that claim. Now, in explaining this verse, I'm going to be saying some things here that go against what some of you believe. So I'm giving you fair warning, okay? And uh, I understand, because I had to wrestle with these things for several years as a college student, uh, that it's hard to get a handle on them. So I'm not trying to force you into something on the spot. But I am going to ask you this. Would you please prayerfully Meditate on what I'm saying and on this verse and ask the Lord to give you wisdom. And then here's the key when he does submit to it, because I I fought and fought with the truth I'm going to share right now until I finally realized, you know what? God is God and I'm not God. And if I'm going to believe the book, I have to submit to this. And that's when I found freedom in this truth. Here's the point. In verse 2, Jesus could have said this. He said, He could have prayed, Father, you have given the Son authority over all flesh, that to all who believe in him he will give eternal life. He could have prayed that. And that would be a true prayer. John three sixteen, John one twelve, as many as believe in him have eternal life. But that's not what he prays. And we have to deal with what did he pray, and why did he pray it? And you'll notice what he prays. He says that the Father has given him authority to give eternal life to all whom the Father has given to him. And he doesn't just pray that once in this prayer. If you look down at verse 6, he prays it twice, referring to those whom the Father gave him. In verse 9, he says it again, and in verse 24, he says it again. And so the emphasis is on God's sovereign choice to give some to the, the Son, uh, or at least to give to the Son, to give authority, to give eternal life to those people. Uh, he said the same thing several other times in John, back in John 5.21. Jesus said this, for just as the Father raises the dead and gives, life, uh, gives them life, even so the Son also gives life, again, not to all who believe in him, but he emphasizes his sovereignty. He gives life to whom he, the Son, wishes. Similar language is in John 6:37 and 39, where Jesus said, All that the Father gives me, there's that phrase again, will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. And then in verse 39, he adds, this is the will. So here's God's sovereign will again. This is the will of him who sent me. That idea again of mission, of being sent. That of all that he has given me, same ideas here, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. So we have Two truths here. Number one, those whom the Father has given to the Son are still responsible to come to Jesus. The appeal is, Come unto me. They must come. But Jesus says that those who come to Him, I mean, that those whom the Father has given Him, will all come. No exceptions. Everyone whom the Father gave to Jesus, which in other biblical terminology is the elect, will come to Jesus. That's a doctrine that's called effectual grace. Sometimes it's a misnomer. It's called irresistible grace. It means that whom the Father chose will, in fact, come to Jesus. And that of those, Jesus says, I'm not going to lose a single one. That's a doctrine called the perseverance of the saints or eternal security. And so they will be kept because their ultimate destiny rests with God's purpose, not with their fickle will. Now, I've heard Bible teachers, and some of you have heard this and maybe believe this, say that Christ will never override man's free will. Now, if you say that, who is sovereign? Man. Man is sovereign because man determines God's purpose. Man determines who gets saved. And that just stands the Bible on his head. And these Bible teachers will portray Christ as being in heaven, impotently pleading with, oh, please, won't you come to me? I want to save you, but I can't because of your free will. But won't you decide to come to me and believe in me? And so you have an impotent Christ who isn't actually able to save anyone because he can't violate that free will. He can only choose save those who choose to cooperate with his offer. And so he's hoping that somewhere, somehow, someone might actually come to Christ, but he can't do anything about it. There's one false teacher who actually goes so far as to say this. That if God is able to save everyone and he only chooses to save some, then God is immoral. And I hate to even say that because that's blasphemy. It is utter blasphemy. Um, You know, it, it exalts proud man, it dishonors our Lord, and what it means is this, Jesus failed in his mission. He cannot give eternal life to all the Father gave him if that eternal life depends on the so-called free will of man. And the reason, by the way, I don't believe in free will is the Bible is clear that we all are captive to Satan before we're saved. He's blinded the eyes of the unbelieving. They cannot believe. God has to break in to open their hearts. And by the way, if you believe in the view that I'm putting down, would you please remove from your prayer list the salvation of anyone because God can't save them. He, he, he's up in heaven saying, boy, I sure wish I could save them, but, you know, there's that stubborn free will issue, and I'm with you, man. I wish they'd be saved, but I can't save them. That's not the view of the God of the Bible. We're going to sing it in a few minutes. He is mighty to save. I believe that. God saves the unsavable from human standpoint, and he saves. Now, here's the, the big question in John 17, two. Why does Jesus, in this context, not pray, Father, you gave him authority to give eternal life to all who believe in him? Why instead does he emphasize, you've given him authority to give eternal life to all you have given to him? And here's what I believe the answer is. He emphasizes that to show us that his work on the cross is not in vain. He is going to suffer on the cross, and he is going to do it to fulfill the purpose, the sovereign eternal purpose of God, to give eternal life to all whom the Father gave him. And so Jesus isn't going to the cross to make salvation possible hoping that somewhere out there somebody will say yes to his offer, but maybe none will. He's not spilling his blood in vain. He's going to the cross to accomplish the sovereign will of God. And in Ephesians 1, we learn there that God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. And it says further there in verse 11 that he predestined us according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. And so, my point is this. God doesn't leave something as important as the salvation of sinners up to their whim. It has to do with God's eternal purpose and fulfilling it. And that's how God glorifies his Son, according to verses 1 and 2. And if we proclaim the gospel faithfully... We'll probably suffer some persecution, some hostility, as Jesus did. But here's the the assurance. We can know that God uses the message we give, the gospel, to save all whom the Father has given to the Son, and he's not going to lose a single one of them. That is an assurance of why we can preach the gospel. And so God's sovereign plan centers on the cross, and the cross glorifies him. And that plan involves Jesus having authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all the Father gave him. The final thing to note here is the essence of that eternal life that Christ gives is that we may know the only true God and Jesus Christ whom he sent. In verse 2, just before I pass on from that, notice that eternal life is a gift. He may give eternal life. And that verb, to give occurs 17 times in this prayer in John 17. And in the gospel of John, the verb to give occurs more than in any of the other gospels. And um, one writer suggests that it really puts the focus on God's grace. And then in verse 3, Jesus defines eternal life. He's drawing together here verses 1 and 2. And he says, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. And so the essence of eternal life is to know God, the only true God that is, and to the um, extent, of course, that we know God, we're going to see God in all of his glory, and therefore he will be glorified in and through us. Um, But the point here is, you can only know God through Jesus Christ. Whom he sent. There's no other way to know the Father. Uh, We saw that back in John 1.18. No one has seen God at any time. So if you say, I know God, really, did you see him? John says, no, you haven't. How do we know God? The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. Or in John 14.9, remember Philip said, show us the Father, it's enough for us. And Jesus replied, he who has seen me has seen the Father. <clears throat> or here's another text, Matthew eleven twenty seven. 27. And again, would you note how Jesus here emphasizes his sovereign choice? Jesus says this, All things have been handed over to me by my Father. That's the same as we have in our text. You've given him authority over all flesh. And no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. So it's with Christ's choice to reveal the Father to anyone. If you know Christ, if you know God, it's because Jesus was gracious to open your eyes to see God. Now, the point here, too, is eternal life is not just quantitative, life that goes on forever, it's qualitative knowing this infinitely glorious being, God, through his Son, Jesus Christ. And so eternal life is a personal relationship that begins when you trust in Christ, and it goes throughout eternity, and it never ends because God is infinite. So throughout the infinite ages, we will be trying to get to know him better and better and better and better, To know him, as Paul says in Philippians 3.10, should be our aim now. Now, Jesus said that the world is going to crucify him and persecute his people. This was back in John 16.3. The reason is because they have not known the Father or me. And that is the key issue. The world does not know God. Jesus came to his own. His own rejected him. They didn't know him. But the point here is Jesus could submit to the cross because he knows the Father perfectly. And to the extent you and I know God, we'll be able to endure persecution and trials and hardships that come into our life because we will look to him, the all-glorious, all-sovereign God who has chosen us, and we can endure that hostility. So our Lord did God's will in this hostile world because... He recognized and submitted to God's sovereign plan to glorify himself through the cross. One other crucial ingredient is this. Jesus submitted to God's sovereign plan through prayer. Through prayer. This whole chapter, John 17, is Christ's prayer. And then in the garden, the agonizing prayer that he made there when he sweat great drops of blood. Those steeled him to be able to endure the hostility, the horror horror of the cross. And in the same way, I think through prayer, we can endure the trials that come into our lives. Now, we'll be going through this prayer for several weeks, of course. Next week, I'll give an Easter message. But just one thing to note right now is, Jesus here prays for something that he knows is absolutely going to happen because it's God's sovereign will. Did you catch that? Jesus knows that the cross is God's sovereign will. And he prays that it'll happen. You go, well, why is he praying for something he knows is going to happen? Before the foundation of the world, God had ordained that the Son would come to this earth, take on human flesh, go to the cross and bear our sins. And now Jesus is saying, it's time. Father, would you do what you've ordained to take place? The reason I bring this up is sometimes people say, well, if you emphasize the sovereignty of God, then why pray? I mean, God's going to do what he's going to do, right? So why pray? And they use that against evangelism, too. You know, well, if God has his elect, they're going to be saved. So why share the gospel? Here's the reason. God ordains the means as well as the end. And the means that God uses to accomplish his purpose is the prayers of his saints and the proclamation of the gospel. Let me give you just two examples in the Bible and we'll be done here. One is regarding evangelism, the other is regarding prayer. Regarding evangelism, the apostle Paul is in prison and he's talking in the context about suffering hardship because of preaching the gospel, and in 2 Timothy 2:10 he says this, "For this reason I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen, the Greek word is the elect." Here's why. So that they may also obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus and with it eternal glory. In other words, Paul suffered so that God's elect would come to faith. Here's one regarding prayer. The prophet Daniel was reading another prophet, Jeremiah. Isn't that interesting? Daniel's reading Jeremiah the prophet and he does the math and he figures out... Jeremiah predicted that there would be 70 years of captivity for Israel in Babylon. And Daniel's thinking, hmm, that's about ready to happen. 70 years are up. So did he sit back and say, cool, let's see what happens, God? No, that's not what happened. Daniel chapter 9 and verse 2, he prays this. Or verse 3. So I gave my attention to the Lord God to seek him by prayer and supplications with fasting sackcloth and ashes. Wow. He's going all out. He's, what he's doing, and the rest of the chapter records his heartfelt prayer is, God, would you do what you promised you'd do? God's sovereignty, man's responsibility. In in the final book of the Bible, Revelation chapter 5, verses 9 and 10, John looks into heaven and he sees the four creatures and the 24 elders And they're holding up bowls of incense. And those bowls of incense are the prayers of the saints. And they sing a new song. Worthy are you to take the the book and to break its seals, for you were slain. There's the cross. And you purchased for God with your blood, notice again here, men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. He did not purchase every tongue, tribe, people, and nation. He purchased men from them, and you have made them to be a kingdom and priest to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. Now, just because God prophesies that that's going to happen, that people from every tongue and tribe and nation are going to be before the throne, doesn't mean that we sit back and go, cool, let's watch God do it. No, it means we should pray, pray for laborers for the harvest. We should give. To support laborers for the harvest, we should send them out with our prayers. They need to go out and suffer and proclaim the gospel to all the nations. And all of that so that God will be glorified through the cross. But we need to understand his sovereign plan and submit to it with obedience and with prayer. A lot of heavy stuff I've shared today. And uh, if you're kind of reeling from it, I'd be glad to talk to any of you about it. But... uh, Maybe before I talk to you, I encourage you to read my sermons on Romans 9 on the church website. And then we'll sit down and talk about it. Be glad to do that. But let me close in prayer. Father, thank you for your word of truth. Uh, These are difficult, mind-boggling things that our little brains can't get around. I pray that you would help us to just be submissive to your word of truth. And to have the balance that that word of truth gives us, that you are sovereign and yet we are responsible. I would ask, Lord, if there are any here who have never come to the cross, that they might see that you command them to repent and believe. And that they would do that, to, have, to come into the glory of your salvation as they believe in the good news that Christ died for sinners. I pray in his name. Amen.